It's time for Taking Care of Business on Midlands 183. With thanks to the local enterprise offices of Leash, Offaly and Westmeath. Find us on localenterprise.ie and let's talk business. Midlands 103. Hello and a very good evening to you all. It's Tuesday the 14th of March. I'm Ronan Berry and you're very welcome to Taking Care of Business here on Midlands 103. Coming up on this show this evening, Offaly's Anna Carmody, the founder of Little Red Edu, the tech startup aiming to make learning fun and engaging with the help of augmented reality and speech recognition tools. She's recently participated in a high-profile accelerator programme as she begins to build out her startup company. We're going to stick with tech startups this evening too, and a little bit later I'll be joined by Shane Monaghan. Shane is a former professional rugby player, but he's also the founder and CEO of Limor, Less is More Limited. It's a social audio platform. It is becoming a game changer, a disruptor in the social media sector as well. It also has its eyes set on the podcast industry. And we might think that the podcast industry is saturated at the minute. Well, analysis from the market suggests we're only scratching the surface and the way that we create audio, capture audio and produce audio will begin to change over the next couple of years. And there is a huge market there that Shane and his company hope to tap into. There's also a bit of a local connection to that company as well. Um, Find out a little bit more on that just after about half past seven this evening. I'll also have some updates of the business news stories that have been making the headlines around the Midlands. But to begin this evening, I'm going to go kind of on a global scale. And uh, you may have heard last week about the collapse and meltdown is one of the words being used of Silicon Valley Bank. And you might ask, how might that have any implications here in the Midlands of Ireland? Well, just to give you some background to it, it was shuttered last week by US regula- regulators. It's been operating, though, in Ireland since about 2012. Its lending primarily is to the Irish technology sector and to some life science companies, too. And lending reached about $226 million by the end of 2018 alone. It had committed to lending an additional $300 million to Irish firms by 2024 as part of a collaboration with the Ireland Strategic Investment Fund. However, ISAF has said that it has no role in providing loans issued by SVB to Irish tech companies. So there is a bit of a potential ricochet effect from this. And, you know, so many Irish companies are tech startups. As I say, the way the, pen, the, way the, the way it just lands this evening, I have to be featuring two startup companies, and neither of which I believe are um, have money from SVB. But I suppose when we speak about that whole area of raising capital, of raising funds for your business, somebody also has to fund the funders as well. So to try and get a little bit of background onto the collapse of SVB and what potential implications it has both on you know globally, both nationally and certainly around here in the Midlands, I am delighted to be joined by Ferdy Roberts. Ferdy lives in Killinard in County Leash and he is the founder and CEO of Asset Class. They Basically, their tagline says, we power the world of private capital. They have over 450 private capital funds and over 40 billion on their platform across the US and Europe. They're proud, they've been proudly building the internet of assets for the world's most progressive companies. And they have teams across Dublin, the US and much further afield too. Ferdy joins me on the phone now. A very good evening, Ferdy. Good evening, Roman. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on Taking Care of Business. Ferdy, set some context for the listeners, please. The, the meltdown, the collapse, the shuttering of SVB last week. How did it come about and what are the likely implications for the tech sector in particular or, or startups in this country? Yeah. Well, I, I, I guess to, to understand what happened with, with Silicon Valley Bank, it's probably appropriate to, to kind of look back to, um, you know, the early part of last week, things would have been, uh, you know, 
looking very good for, for Silicon Valley Bank. They have, um, you know, by all accounts, they looked uh, from the outside as having a pretty nice, uh, what we call book value, which is just the difference between what they owe and uh, and the assets that they have. And so in, in, in simple terms, uh, they had customer, customer deposits and other debt, which was about $195 billion, uh, in, in the bank. They had um, other... Uh, assets um, of 208 billion, and so the net, you know, the, the value of the bank, if you if you will, was about 13 billion. So pretty healthy situation. Um, where they had some challenges is um, they have an over reliance on the tech sector. So about 50 percent of venture capital backed um, companies um, in the U.S. bank with Silicon Valley Bank, and so the profile what's happened in that sector. I mean, we see it in you know, the tech layoffs that have been happening really since kind of May, June of last year. The tech sector has taken a little bit of a hit. Uh, the net result of that is that, um, you know, those there's not as much money being invested. In fact, there's records amount of what the venture capitalists will call dry powder, which is money that was raised but not yet deployed. And so when you're a bank that relies on the deposits of technology companies, those tech, and, and those deposits aren't increasing, that 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 starts to cause a challenge. So they had this kind of perfect storm. On the one hand, deposits slowing significantly from venture-backed companies. And then they had another problem, which was really of their own doing. When, when times were good, they made significant investments in, in securities. And by securities, I mean government treasury bonds and mortgage-backed securities in the U.S. But the types of uh, investments they made were long-term. So they bought 10-year they made an investment basically on, in, the, in these instruments for 10 years. And the challenge, of course, with that is that if you want to sell them at any point in time, uh, if you sell them during those 10 years, you're going to make a loss on them just uh, uh, for, for a number of reasons. One, because interest rates were rising in the U.S. And so the net result of that is they, they, they bought um, these securities at, at, at value A, um, the value of those investments went down significantly, and they saw themselves, you know, with a very significant multi-billion-dollar loss uh, on those investments. In order to try and shore up the finances of the bank, the CEO came out to market and said, "We'd like to sell some shares, and we're going to have to sell some of these securities at a loss." And that basically started the ball rolling. It started to spook, um, uh, you know, the, the depositors of the bank, and literally on, on Thursday of last week. Uh, the you know some 42 billion dollars in in withdrawals uh, you know, were, were made in the bank and that was really j- just far too much for the bank to bear. They didn't have that cash position. They held of of their total 208 billion, they held about 14 billion in cash, and then the rest uh, you know was a mixture of loans and these securities, which were about 26 billion. The net result of that was that the the bank was effectively um, you know bankrupt. Um, they, uh, and so, as a result, um, this run of the bank, this 46, uh, you know, or 42 billion rather in withdrawals, uh, was just too much for them to bear. And, and so, pretty soon, you, you, if you are a client of the bank, you're trying to log in, you're, you're getting a blank screen. The FDIC, uh, which is really the the, uh, the, the Fed in, in the U.S., um, you know, had to step in and say, we're taking control of this bank. And there was a period, you know, Thursday and Friday of last week, and certainly over the weekend, where large numbers of venture-backed companies were wondering if they could meet payroll, uh, whether their cash was going to be tied up until the assets in the bank were being sold. Uh, just a, a, a complete mess. So that's kind of the background to it, how it happened. 
Yeah, it's significant, and dare I say, it, it has kind of um, a pre- it's probably bringing back memories for people of stuff that happened in this country about twelve or thirteen years ago. But it seems to have happened at a very kind of rapid pace too. And usually, like if companies are just waiting to see if they can pay employees or begin to pay creditors, like you know, yeah. over the weekend, and see what has happened. I suppose in terms of that, like I know HBS HSBC have come in and and bought the bank, is it for something like one pound sterling? Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, in the UK, there's a division, uh, Silicon Valley Bank UK, which was purchased for a nominal value, which is you know, why you'll see the headline saying that it's been bought for, you know, for pounds. It needs to be some value just on the, on the contract, I guess, or on the contracts that have been signed. Um, but, but essentially, what they will have done is taken over the entire bank, um, including the liabilities of that bank. Um, I'm sure behind the scenes, there are agreements with, uh, you know, with the with uh, with the Bank of England and. Um, to, to ensure that the, the downside is protected for HSBC to step in to shore up the situation, to ensure that the thousands of companies that rely on Silicon Valley Bank UK for the banking services, that, that they're unaffected. And, I mean, they, they moved swiftly and, and uh, you know, came to the market before the markets opened, before there was potential for any additional um, uh, you know, impact, and, and, and very successfully uh, communicated that to 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 the clients and, and to the broader um, uh, the broader ecosystem that is reliant on on the UK arm. Equally, in the US, you know, the, the Fed stepped in and announced also before the markets opened, uh, crucially, um, that that they were uh, not, not just providing the the current cover, which is about 250k per company cover on deposits. Um, but, but actually stepping up to cover the entire deposits of the bank. And in the same way, they'll be doing you know, uh, deals in the back, and I'm sure over the coming weeks and possibly months to ensure that, 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 that they're de-risking and that uh, they, you know, perhaps there's a, a white knight who can step in, uh, someone at the J.P. Morgan Goldman uh, uh, t- type level that can take control of SVB in the same way as, uh, as the UK arm was, was, was taken control of by, by HSBC. Since the news first broke, I mean, there's been a number of Irish companies have said that you know they did bank with SVB. I know Pat Phelan, the co-founder of CSU Aesthetic Clinic, said they managed to withdraw the majority of their money. I think I'm talking quite a few million pounds or dollars out of it before it was actually shuttered. So some companies were able to react quickly to that as well. Do we know much about the scale of the impact it, it, it potentially has in this country? Um, it's tough. To, it's tough to get visibility on that, and, and uh, the reason being, I mean, for, for example, I mean, we, we, we've raised, you know, as a company, my company, we've raised about 15 billion, uh, sorry, 15 million uh, over the over the last 18 months. Uh, much of which, in fact, the majority of which uh, sits in in, in Irish banks. Um, but it, of course, this raises the specter of uh, the potential for runs on banks. So Silicon Valley Bank would certainly be considered a preeminent bank, a top 20 bank in the U.S. Um, in fact, I banked with them in a previous startup that I, that I ran in the Valley back in, in 2010 and you know, got great service from them, but they would be extremely well respected in, in, in this community. You would never have expected that this would be a bank that would fail. And so the, the net result, um, you know, for, for Irish companies, many of them will have been approached. Uh, in fact, I was approached with, with my most recent venture. I was approached by Silicon Valley Bank to see if, if they could provide services to me. Now, we bank with a separate company, Capital Mercury, uh, in, in the States, um, and so didn't need their services. But I could just as easily have been in the situation that, you know, Pat uh, was in with Sisu, where, you know, the news was breaking and, you know, you've got to just rush to try and get that uh, capital out as, as quickly as you can. Um, where there's opaqueness in the, in the Irish exposure is that uh, 
it would have been very difficult, for example, to get visibility of uh, any money that, for example, my company would have had in, S- in, in Silicon Valley Bank. I would have placed that money there to help us do business in, in the U.S. And we have U.S. operations, um, but that, that wouldn't necessarily appear on any radar in Ireland. So I'm sure that there are many companies um, who were impacted, uh, but just not very easy to get visibility on, on how many and what the, the, the real size of that exposure was. I'm sure it will come to light in the coming weeks and months, but right now there's, there's very little insight into that. Um, they're, they're active, but not super active. I mean, there's a couple of thousand or so clients in the, in the UK. Uh, so if you were to kind of do some quick back, uh, you know, back of, of the napkin math, uh, maybe it's in the, the low hundreds here uh, at, at best. So reasonably isolated, I'd would, I would suggest. Yeah, we'll probably learn more, more probably come to light in the coming days as well. But you mentioned there how companies yeah. may begin to withdraw funds, obviously not from SVB, but from other banks too, in order maybe to spread that or, or diversify their banking relationships. Is that something that you expect companies to do now because this has raised that risk that, as you say, maybe wasn't there with them, wasn't, wasn't really on their radar just a week ago? Yeah, I, I mean, this is one of the you know really significant changes. Um, it's it, it certainly... Um, common practice for, let's say, growth companies, larger companies, to diversify their banking relationships for various reasons, not the least of which is the level of insurance cover that you get, um, you know, with, with those banking relationships. So here in Ireland, we're we're all reasonably familiar with the uh, with the government-backed um, deposit guarantee scheme, which which uh, you know protects you up to eighty-five thousand um, in in a single account for a company or an individual. Um, when you look to similar cover in the U.S., uh, the FDIC cover, it's 250000 But if you're a company that is, um, let's say, a, 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 a small, or let's say a larger startup or progressing to growth stage, you may have 10 to $15 million that, um, that, that you've raised um, that, that is sitting in various um, banks um, around the world, some in the U.S., some in, in Europe, for example. But you certainly wouldn't be spreading it around in chunks of, 85,000 or you know, chunks of 250, for that matter, to try and get that line of line of um, insurance coverage that, uh, that, that that's right now. Venture capital firms are advising, uh, you know, that you do that. They're they're suggesting that you do diversify those relationships and you know, spread that money across multiple banking partners. You know, the vast majority of companies who have been affected by this would have been the smaller um, VC and private equity backed companies rather than those kind of growth stage companies who have that kind of diversification in place today anyway. Um, so that, that's a major shift. You know, if I look at, we, we have a lot of visibility we work with, as you mentioned, hundreds of, of VC and private equity um, funds around the world. So we can see what they're doing, the outreach that they're making to their portfolio companies, advising them to diversify those relationships, to bring on more banking relationships. And of course, if you look at that at a a regional or indeed even a global level, you've now got large amounts of money that are being moved um, you know, from one bank to the next or one bank to many other banks. And so I think the ramifications of that will be very significant over the coming you know, weeks and months. I think it's going to upend the balance sheets of many, uh, particularly at the, the smaller end of the banking market, the regional and maybe super regional banks, um, might find themselves with large outflows because there is a significant what we call race to quality. So in the in, in the US, for example, the top four banks are seeing massive inflows. So the JP Morgan's, Wells Fargo's, Chase, um, Bank, etc., seeing massive inflows as as these uh, as companies are are 
concerned about leaning on with these smaller regional banks who might be precariously, you know, uh, uh, balanced um, and, and, and maybe exposed to some of these shifts that are that are happening in the market, whether it's interest rate shifts or indeed just the fallout of or contagion of what's happened with Silicon Valley Bank. Absolutely, I suppose following the last couple of years, while the pandemic presented a lot of opportunities for the tech sector and growth, the last year has you know, brought some challenges, maybe a slight tightening around the venture capital or private equity market. So watching the fall yeah. of this one will be one that we'll all watch with great interest. But Ferdinand, no doubt a, a subject we'll be back to speak to you about again, as maybe we, we learn more about um, the, the, the meltdown of SVB. But for now, uh, Ferdy Roberts, thank you so much for coming on this evening and uh, we'll talk to you again in the future. No problem. Thanks, Roman. Take care. Ferdy lives in Killinard in County Leash and he's the founder and CEO of Asset Class. You can check them out, assetclass.com. If you want to get in touch with me this evening in the studio, 083 103 is the text and WhatsApp number powered by Offaly's top-selling car brand, Land Brothers Toyota, on the Arden Road in Tullamore. I'm sticking with that theme of technology and startups and in about 15 minutes' time, you're going to meet the founder of Lemore. Less is more limited. It's a social audio app that is going to take the world by storm. Huge ground made in just a couple of years. Fascinating story. Um, more to come on that, I'd say, in around half past seven or 25 to eight. Before that, though, I want to introduce you to another tech founder. Anna Carmody is no stranger to Midlands 103, although in previous visits she's had her guitar with her because she is, amongst many things, an accomplished singer and musician. But she's here tonight to talk to us about Little Red Edu. It's a programme software product that she has been developing over a couple of years and uh, like that is at that stage we're trying to raise some funding for it as well in order to grow and scale the product. But it's a fascinating story. So, Anna, very good evening to you. Welcome back to Midlands 103. Thanks, Ronan. Great to be here. Tell us, I suppose, in a nutshell about Little Red Edu, how it came about and, and what it is. So, it's a good story. I was teaching English in Vietnam and um, I could see a real need for a language app and something that focuses on pronunciation in the classroom and at home for young learners, so three to six-year-olds. Um, so that's great. You spotted that. You're out teaching English. How do you go about turning that into a potential software product, a piece of technology you've been working on, but one that also brings in things like augmented reality and stuff? It doesn't sound like the easiest things in the world to blend. <laughs> They're not, but I did start I, as a product designer in the National College of Art and Design. So I was able to sort of combine the product design experience with my English language teaching. And um, then I came up with the concept of um, using augmented reality and combining it with speech recognition to solve the problem of um, pronunciation and that difficulty with learners. How did you go about developing the first iteration of it, a prototype? So I I pulled together a team. I was on a program called New Frontiers and it allowed me to have a little bit of money every month for for nine months um, to get a team together, developer and designers, found some language experts and we worked together throughout the pandemic actually, so it was all online and we started designing our product and what it would look like for the classroom and doing up some wireframes of the app and what that might look like and then trialing and testing and and building uh, throughout the the last few months. What was the outcome of the trials that you did? So it was interesting. I I went around to Ukrainian refugees actually to trial our first MVP and then the content for our second MVP. And um, some of the outcomes were obviously negative and that is what you want as well when you're starting out. You want the feedback and the honest feedback so that you can build it better. Absolutely. And of course, with that too, there's always the kind of human behavioural element too. You want to see how people are engaging with your with your technology as well. Um, at any point did it make you kind of go, oh, where am I going with this? Am I the right direction? Or are you, you clear on where you want to take this? 
I know plenty of times I've had to pivot and change, <laughs> and I'd say many um, many other tech founders have had the same experience. And um, with something like this as well, and with young learners, there's always you know the, the trials are really a trial and error, and you have to find out kind of what works and what doesn't work, and then what works for one school, for example, might be different for another school. So we have that sort of added complication as well. We're trying to build something that's universal that will work globally. And how do you take something like augmented reality and use that in a in a speech recognition or a speech in a learning platform? Like how do you what, what what way do you use it and what benefit does it give the end user, which are children, obviously school children? So it's actually quite simple. The children are faced with um, a very, very simple and fun app and they speak their words into existence. So let's say, for example, I'll give you a simple one. They say dog. Um, if they say it correctly, dog will appear and then they can interact with dog. And it's very exciting for them because they can see a dog has just landed on their kitchen table or in the in the kitchen or in the sitting room and then they can interact with it. But all the while, the speech recognition tracks every phonetic sound that the child makes, put it, puts it in a progress report for the teacher or the parent. So, and this is something they can work on at home in their own time. You know, when they're crying out for screen time and they want their tablets or whatever else, if they can actually work on, on developing and learning their language there too. Did you find going looking at things like augmented reality tools, was it daunting? Is it quite an expensive area to get into? It can be expensive, um, definitely, um, especially the content. It's actually the content creation that's expensive. You're looking at 3D animation and 2D asset design as well. Um, and then having as much content as you can for, say, a curriculum for kids, um, especially if you're building out something like we are, which is a recurring revenue subscription based app. So we need lots of content to fill to fill in. Keep it going. But in 2019, you won a National Startup Award. So where are you in terms of funding then? Is it something you've bootstrapped so far? Have you got any investment into the company at this point? So we've raised uh, nearly 100 grand to date and that's got us to this stage where we have our beta app and it's live and kids can trial it out. It's one week worth of content and we're in discussions with uh, large preschool chains in Asia primarily and um, one school as well as waiting to do our, our, our R&D sort of trial in the classroom and we're hoping that we'll get that across the line but we need the funding to make that happen so we really do need um, some backers so if there's anyone listening <laughs> uh, If somebody has pulled a couple of hundred million out of SVB there in <laughs> Silicon Valley or something that would be the ideal time to get in touch anyway littlerededu.com is the website just in case you are listening there so what's the what's next on your trajectory where, where would you like to take this and um, how do you see yourself getting there I suppose like what are is there few further iterations of it as well as developing the content like do you see kind of ad, you know, add, add-ons or an additional service being delivered Absolutely like we're looking at say our curriculum at the moment is listen and speak with Little Red that's focusing on the pronunciation the speech recognition and the augmented reality to help children learn how to speak English like a native speaker but later on we're looking at read and write with Little Red so there's all kinds of opportunities of bringing in other t- types of technology to build on that and we have a, a teddy bear that we've in our um, vision as well, where kids can actually talk to their teddy bear and it can talk back to them. Um, but, you know, that would be a way to get them off the screen as well. So we're, we're trying to kind of work out a couple of plans into the future. So as well as being through New Frontiers and, you know, raising up to €100,000 already, you've recently completed an accelerator program with um, Huawei, with uh, Dogpatch Labs up in Dublin. How did that go? That was very exciting and Huawei chose us as their spotlight startup. So um, we did the pitch and I was up first, so I was very nervous. Didn't expect that it was going to go out to 2 million people in Asia. So it was uh, 
yeah, it was frightening to see those numbers, but <laughs> exciting as well. And Huawei, we're very, um, we're very good to work with, and they gave us three hundred thousand in cloud credits, so we can't complain. Wow, and for anyone listening that wouldn't be familiar with that, that's that that is decent because there's often these, you know, the hidden costs that you don't see behind startups are the cost of cloud hosting and all these type of things, even around IP and that type of stuff. It can be quite expensive to have your patents and your intellectual property and stuff protected, as well as you know trying to run a business and on the two. But uh, with the collaboration with that and working with Dogpatch Labs, did it did it lead to any new developments with the uh, with with the program or the software? Or did, it, did it throw up any new kind of insights for yourself? It definitely helped, um, especially because our market, our primary market is Asia. So Huawei were sort of a perfect um, collaborator for us. So there's been a lot of advisor, really helpful advice um, in the area of work going into, say, China, for example. Um, and that's been really beneficial to us. So we do, we have a clear pathway, especially after the accelerator. Um, it was just such a small amount of time, but a lot of um, a lot of hard work in that time that helped us to progress. Yeah. I have to say, I'd marry you. That's the biggest market potentially on the planet as well. So fair play, like there's, there's huge ambition behind it too. Of course, you have uh, potentially a great uh, test subject at home. You have a seven-month-old son already. So, and you're a you know, you're, you've a bit, you're a you're a well-accomplished musician as well. Anybody who checks out on YouTube will see that too. Uh, simple question: How do you balance all that? It's a good question, yeah. Um, the seven-month-old, is uh, he's very chill, so we're lucky with that. But <laughs> Isaac, he, um, it's lovely. It's such an amazing feeling to put all this hard work into a product like this and then see him smiling when the animation song videos come on and watching the app. Um, it was really heartwarming, actually. That just happened the other day, so it's it's great. He must have the most perfect speech out there. He'll have, when, he, when he begins talking, he'll be perfectly polished. He's already polished. said Dada, so we're, <laughs> we're on the road. <laughs> that tangent are coming as well. You know, it's a fantastic story. It's um, it's one that has been growing momentum for the past couple of years too, and undoubtedly going great places as well. Just give people a reminder: how can they find out more about it? So www.littlerededu.com, and I'm Anna Carmody. You can find me on LinkedIn and Anna at littlerededu.com, and definitely if you want to back us, we're open to it and uh, reach out. Well, couldn't have said it better myself. There you go. You've heard it from Anna herself. And um, if you want to put some money behind that too, Anna is definitely open for a conversation. So fantastic product, littlerededu.com. Anna, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks a million. I don't know what it is with tech startups and founders. And people seem to want to have not just one career, but multiple careers. Anna Carmody, who's just left the studio there, is an accomplished musician, as well as being the founder of Little Red Edu. Shane Monaghan founded the social audio app, Lee Moore. That's less is more limited a number of years ago and he was a former professional rugby player. His career stretched from Leinster to Connacht and he also played with Gloucester in the UK for a couple of years too. Now Shane is here to tell us more about about Leemore, about the app, how it came about and you know what his projections are for it because if we look at the global podcast market the potential for it is absolutely astronomical. You know, you might think at the minute and it sometimes looks like everybody out there is currently doing a podcast but there is much more room and much more scope for even more content. The important thing is is how we look at that content, how we how we curate it, and how we produce it for the radio. Now, what you might have also noticed is that technology is fantastic, and the phone line has also dropped. So I'm battling here for a couple of seconds just to try and get Shane. And hopefully, Shane Monaghan is on the line this time. Shane, how are you? I'm very good. Uh, we have him, we have him now. Absolutely fantastic, Shane. I was doing a bit of an introduction to you there, talking about your former career as a professional rugby player, and just mentioned the fact that the previous founder right on also had kind of a side career there as well and, and is currently a musician. So I'm kind of wondering what it is with you entrepreneurs that you know, lets you wear many hats and take on these crazy projects. 
but also two very successful products projects. To begin, just introduce us to Lemore, what it is and how it came about. So Lemore is a new social audio platform that removes the barriers to entry for uh, podcasts and audio creation, distribution and interaction. And um, I originally came up with the idea actually when I was still playing professional rugby after a quick conversation with my dad about starting a podcast. He loved the idea, but when I actually explained what it took to do it, within 60 seconds, he said, no, it's not for me. Too much information, not interested. And uh, that sparked the idea to come up with a platform to remove those barriers of entry to podcast creation. When you mentioned social audio, that effectively is, yeah. if we know the likes of Facebook or Instagram has been very much visual or, visual or TikTok as video, you are really, the human voice is the kind of key part of this. Yeah, massively. And that's it. Like, I podcast and I got into podcasts originally when I, when I was playing rugby over in England. And I would paint portraits in my spare time and get to consume audio, be entertained and educated at the same time. But one thing I found that was lacking in it is the fact you can't actually communicate and talk directly with podcast hosts. And uh, that's one of the great things about social media is you can reach out to, you know, your heroes, sports stars, journalists, uh, radio hosts like yourself and communicate with them, uh, but generally via text. So to be able to do it via voice, I thought, would be a, a fantastic evolution of social media into the audio space. And uh, I think with the growth of podcasting, uh, people are really uh, liking that idea now as well. I mean, the podcasting sector is tipped to be worth like 14 and a quarter billion by the end of this year. So clearly huge opportunity there too. But that thing around the voice, I mean, it's well known that radio is the most trusted medium out there at the minute. Mm. There's something really authentic about a person's voice. Um, is that something that you f- you find with Limor that because you kind of have to be yourself when it's your voice, people aren't going to start posting negative voice comments online, I'd imagine? Yeah, that's actually a huge thing that we found. It is It removes the um, keyboard warrior type mentality, you know, because when you use your voice, it is you. But the, um, the other aspect of it as well, when you listen to audio, you realize that it is a human and a person on the other end of it. And, and that can be lost in translation when it's just text or images on the Internet. So people take their time and they go, right, OK, I might not agree with this person, but I can hear um, what they're trying to get across by the tone. The tonality is a huge thing with voice as well, accents, and uh, it leads to a, a very positive experience on the platform. And I've actually made friends with people on the other side of the world that I've never actually seen their face just by communicating with them and having conversation with them in the voice comments on Lemur. So it's a very um, interesting, strange experience, but a very positive one. Yeah, and I can imagine too, it also overcomes that thing that particularly if it's printed, somebody can take a sentence that somebody has said and maybe just use that little segment and it can lead to people being misquoted where actually if the voice, as you say, you're getting that tone, you're getting the various intonations in it and then maybe it's a more pure reflection of, of their point of view or their stance at that time as well. So, look, that's all fantastic. How do you then go about taking that and creating an app, a software product and how do you go about developing that? That's a very good question. Here I am, almost eight years later, still doing it. It's a never-ending process uh, I actually got a degree in product design when I was in the Lancer Academy in, in Dublin. And you, you learn that whole process of coming up with an idea and how do you make it a reality. And there's lots of different aspects to it. You know, there's the uh, the engineering aspect of it, the coding aspect. I wasn't a coder. I'm not a coder. 
so I had to do something very similar to professional sport is recruit a very strong uh, group of people around me that have the skill sets that I didn't have. Um, so that's one thing we did. We, we recruited some amazing people on the coding front, but also people from the business front, et cetera, et cetera, to uh, build a fantastic team that has um, got us to this position now to have a, have a platform that we've you know, essentially researched and developed over a number of years um, to be in prime position now for the, the market of podcasting, which is really taking off this year. Um, and essentially, when I came up with the idea for Lemar, we were way ahead of the curve. You know, when I started this, when I came up with the idea in 2014, people didn't even know what the word podcast meant. And that's not an exaggeration. So to to stick with it, to get to this stage and have the platform ready to go when the market is about to explode is, is very exciting. How did you go about determining what your MVP, your minimum viable product was? And, and did it take long to actually develop that and get it out into the marketplace? It took a very long time, yeah. Like the initial prototype, um, we got developed quite quickly because it was a case of not reinventing the wheel. You know, I looked at existing social media platforms and what people liked, features they enjoyed, features I used myself that I thought would apply very well to the spoken word and the industry of podcasting. And and then throughout testing when we had those prototypes and getting direct feedback from users um, has led to the products we have now and, and one thing we wanted to avoid doing as well is, is trying to over engineer because lemur lim award the name of the company stands for less is more keep it simple you know uh, and and that is very important to our ethos of of design moving forward as well and that's what i think people really like about it but the, the product we have now has evolved into uh, we have a freemium version for you know uh, individuals to use that they can get <clears throat> get on and create content straight away but we've developed a new lemur enterprise offering which is uh, built specifically for corporates which allows uh, teams to create content uh, for a business profile so for example if you had a newspaper that could newspaper could buy an enterprise profile and say they had 100 journalists those 100 journalists could set up premium accounts be linked to the business profile and now instantly use 100 podcasters so that has got an amazing response over the last number of weeks since we started pushing that to uh, companies. Sounds like you, you have a clear kind of a path laid out in front of you in terms of what you'd like to do as well. Of course, developing anything, particularly in soft and, and in software in the technology sector, requires a bit of money too. How did you go about raising funds and, and what sort of funds have you raised to date? Or was your professional career so successful that you could, you could uh, self-fund all of this? <laughs> Unfortunately not. Uh, maybe if I was in football, uh, and got a lot of transfer fees I would have been able to fund it myself but uh, rugby hasn't quite caught up uh, to the levels of money that they get in the in the game of soccer but um, yeah no it's not an easy thing raising money especially for a product that is so ahead of its time you know ahead of the ahead of the curve as I said when I started this journey people didn't even know what a podcast was and I'm talking about social audio which is beyond podcasting again but I was very lucky to um, get in front of, um, you know, family and friends uh, who believed in me and believed in the vision and the product to get me started. And then from there, uh, some high, no- high net worth individuals who also um, saw something uh, in the opportunity in the business and have backed me. And I have to give a big thank you to all of them because they've been very patient with me and, and the business to get to this point and support me um, and 
thankfully now things are starting to to really take off. And uh, if there's anyone listening who'd be interested in talking to me, you're more than welcome to give me a shout if you'd like to have a chat. Yeah, I forgot to mention to Anna Carmody before the break. I take a fifteen percent cut anyway of any any you know relationships that are, that are created through the show as well. Just better point that out here now. But um, no, that's fancy. Look, that's the thing to do. I mean, I I know myself too. Like from talking to people in that kind of venture capital and private equity sphere, that they really want to see a couple of things. Number one is the people behind the business, and if somebody's had an idea mm-hmm. and they've done like you've done, you don't over engineer it. You've got out to market. You've got some revenues coming in already it really puts you in good stead for finding you know, whatever stage funding you're at. Do you see, though, your, your actual business, your revenues, do you see it kind of growing exponentially in the next couple of years now that you've you've kind of done the training, you've got the hard work done? Yeah, most definitely. Like, that that hard period of time of, of running a business on a shoestring, essentially, um, to, to get it to this point and survive and... and um, see that the market thankfully you know my predictions that i made in 2015 2016 of where the market was going to go have happened and beyond so we nailed it with that one and now that we've got the product in place we still have a product that no one else is doing no one else can offer it and um it's going to change the industry of of podcasting and and voice i think interaction in itself and some of the conversations as i said we've only really started pushing lemur enterprise in the last three weeks and i'm blown away by the response um i i knew it would be good but i didn't realize it would be as good as it has been with some big corporates really high level um, media agencies individuals and i i think the next 12 to 18 months are going to be very very exciting for us yeah i think it's like a lot of things our smartphones we're only beginning you know majority of people are done don't even see yet the potential that's in them, like, you know, from mobile journalism perspective about getting those stories, those inputs, those voice audios maybe from the scene or getting that on the ground information back on stories as well. Huge, huge potential in it. But as you kind of launch Lean More Enterprises too, you've brought a little bit of extra talent on board as well. One um, one person who has a, quite a lot of local connection indeed, not just to Tullamore and Offaly, but uh, to this very station. Yes, most definitely. Um, Terry Fahey, I believe, is the man you're alluding to. And it's funny, we met through Thanks to Lemur um, a few years ago and he came on and started uh, using it. And one of the most talented men I've ever met when it comes to, uh, bar yourself, of course, uh, talking on the radio and creating audio content. And he's he's bringing his uh, creative uh, skill set and management and just, overall um, personality he's a great guy to the table and, and that's what I said coming back to that point in terms of uh, Lemur is all about a team and, and that's one thing I learned myself as I said it's having a great team of people around you who believe in the vision of what you want to achieve and Terry certainly does that and I'm over, over the moon to have him involved in Lemur moving forward now, yes, I'd say he will absolutely love those comments. He might even believe them as well, what you just said about him yeah. there. But anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll leave him there for a second. Shane, it's a fantastic story. And, you know, again, I always admire somebody who can have that vision all those years ago and, and go about it. I'm sure you had plenty of people telling you to stop, like, you know, saying, like, where are you going? This is crazy. Or this is only what big tech people or people in Silicon Valley can build. Oh, yeah. And we still have it, um, even to this day. Uh, I think it's it just, as you said, it comes to a little bit of lack of understanding of, of the opportunity and, and the technology. And again, no one believes in your uh, business or product or vision as much as yourself. Um, but whenever we get an opportunity to, to actually talk to people and show it to them, it, it converts them fairly quickly. And um, I think the, the, 
the thing about podcasting as well is, it, it, as we call it, traditional podcasting, there's, there's a certain kind of viewpoint and way things should be done, quote-unquote. Uh, I, I compare it to when social media first came along and you had the traditional media, they didn't accept it and didn't see it as the future because they were the media and they knew how things were done. And then all of a sudden they were saying, oh, no, we need to get involved in the social media thing. And it's going to be the same with um, social audio and Lemur and where technology is going because Lemur is being built not just for podcasting, not just for social audio, but all forms of voice uh, technology moving into, into the future, including voice AI, voice machine learning, voice transcription, translation, et cetera, et cetera. And we want to give people easy access to get involved in that, not the requirement to have loads of equipment and expertise um, to, to, to start that journey. So it's removing those barriers of entry, as I mentioned right at the start, like the conversation with my dad, for everyone to instantly engage and get started in um, the voice revolution, essentially. Sounds like nothing's going to stop you. Shane Monaghan, thank you so much for coming on this evening again. A story that undoubtedly is going to grow and grow and one that we will touch back, touch base with you again on in the future. All the very best with Lee Moore and uh, look at all the best. Looking forward to seeing exactly where that goes over the coming years. Amazing stuff, Ronan. Thank you very much. Thank you, Shane. Shane is the founder of Lee Moore. That's limor.ie. Check it out. Social audio podcast channels as well. That instant access for people who are struggling to get it and uh, going to be a game changer. Look at it. That's it. Loads of tech founders on this evening. All talking about voice, the power of voice, speech recognition, using AR, the extended reality suite of tools as well. So much fantastic stuff happening out there. After all, Derek, call it the excitement of working from home brought about by the pandemic. It really has thrown front and centre that discussion about the four-day working week. Can it happen? Is it really a thing? Is it just a scam that if your employees can do the same amount of work in four days than five? Why weren't they doing that all along? Well, you'll know that if you talk to anybody in the industry, kind of engaging employees is a huge part of it. But one company that has done so very successfully and implementing a four-day week is Tormi Solicitors in Athlone. Now, recent research says that the majority of employees want a four-day week, but some employers seem to have you know, productivity concerns around this concept. It comes as a new Hayes Ireland survey found that just 3.5% of workplaces have brought in or trialled the four-day working week in Ireland. That's despite 95% of professionals saying it should be implemented. Tony Henry is managing partner at Tormy Solicitors Net Loan and he's been talking to Will Faulkner about their trial and describes just how it works. The concept is that you, you um, pay 100% of the wages, you work 80% of the time, but you maintain 100% of the efficiencies of the output. And what, what I have found, and Mark will speak for himself on this, but what I have found is that it forces you to tweak your procedures, you know, look for efficiencies where maybe before you were going with the flow, um, and, and I think that it's working that, in that way. And a fantastic example, the full audio is available on midlands103.com in the Listen Back section under the podcast. You know, you can find and listen to that full interview because they've proven what other companies have shown already. If you engage the employees, they can find and remove all the inefficiencies. You know, all those meetings that could just be an email, meetings that have people that don't need to be there, therefore wasting time and making us all people be stuck at the desk for that extra day a week. Fascinating stuff and much more to come on that. Hopefully you have enjoyed this evening's show and you've enjoyed listening to the two tech founders, Anna Carmody and Shane Monaghan. And also to thank you to uh, Ferdy Roberts there for his input on the collapse of SVB Bank and the potential implications for Irish and global business there too. It's definitely one to watch and let's see where that goes. 
I'll talk to you all next week. Taking care of business returns next Tuesday at 7 p.m. with the local enterprise offices of Leash, Offaly and Westmeath. Find us on localenterprise.ie and let's talk business.